Hi folks, this is Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another episode of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the kingdom of God. Uh, this is, you ready for this folks? This is episode 52 of the Jesus Society Podcast, and that means that we have now been producing this podcast for a whole year. That's right. Um, this episode today will go live on Monday, February 22nd, 2021, and the inaugural episode went live on Monday, February 21st, 2020. So happy birthday to the Jesus Society podcast. And I, I just want to say as we, as we start uh, today and as we start year two of this, that we could not have come this far without all of you. Our our listeners continue to um, to grow at a rate that, frankly, has far exceeded my wildest expectations. Um, I, I've said this before. I have I started this podcast because I really just I felt like God wanted me to do it, and um, I, I I also should say I do not believe at all that. Um, success and growth and a large audience and, and and the things that we sometimes place such a high value on in our modern 21st century world, I don't think those kinds of things are necessarily an ironclad indication of the favor and blessing of God at all. We, we think that way sometimes in the modern world where where we like everything big and flashy and and quick growing and and you know all those kinds of things. So, uh, you know, the, our audience has grown, and I feel like this has been successful so far. But uh, I, that's those kind of metrics. I don't even like thinking about things that way. That's not what um, that's not what's driving this, and that's not. You know, I don't think this podcast is successful just because we have a lot of listeners. I think it's successful because. God has asked me to do it, and I'm doing it. And whatever success, however he defines success, that's all I'm really interested in. So anyway, um, I, I continue to believe that God wants me to produce this podcast. I will continue to do so. I, I pray all the time that it is a blessing and a help to uh, those of you who are who are listening to it. Um, but, uh, I, I you know, I'm, and we're at a year now, and what other people do when they have big milestones like this is they do some sort of big giveaway or or something you know and most of that's to try to drive more listeners or members or or, or whatever um, I I'd love to be able to offer you a gift I really would um, those of you who have been listening regularly I would love to just have some big giveaway you know to do that but I frankly I don't have the funds. Uh, to be able to to do anything like that, and so my my deep heartfelt gratitude and my continued commitment to the podcast is going to have to be enough. That's that's all I can offer um, at this moment. Um, so I, I am grateful that we've that we've hit a year um, for this, and um, I hope this is being. Uh, I hope you're finding the podcast a blessing because um, that's really what I want in all this. Um, so. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for sticking with us. Uh, I hope, I really hope if you, if you find this valuable, I hope you will share it with somebody and, and uh, maybe it can be a blessing uh, to them as well. So moving on, 
uh, I want us to continue today kind of uh, thinking and talking our way through uh, the story of the Old Testament and, and what God is up to, maybe at a, at a deeper level than what we did last year. Um, and, and again, for me, these are kind of building blocks of the story of God among his people. So today, I want us to think a little bit about the Exodus and in particular what it, what it revealed to Israel, um, what it continues to reveal to us today about God and how the Exodus informs um, things that happened in the first century with Jesus. Okay, so we're just going to touch on some of those things a little bit. But, but first, uh, a little bit of background. So after uh, God calls Abraham and promises through him to build a nation through which all the peoples of the earth will be blessed, uh, Genesis 12, 3, uh, those people will arrive in Egypt where they will end up enslaved for roughly 430 years, okay? So God is persistent in restarting his program to have a people in the midst of his increasingly disordered world who will bear his image and, um, and reflect his, his image and his glory and his love uh, to this world. Israel will now be that people, but Israel's in trouble. Now, most of you have probably read uh, the book of Exodus. I hope you have. Um, or at least maybe you've seen the 1956 movie, The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. Or at the very least, maybe you've seen the 1998 DreamWorks animated movie, The Prince of Egypt. So somewhere in all of that, hopefully you're at least somewhat familiar with the story of, of um, Israel and Egypt. But the bottom line, at least for our purposes today, is that God's people are being ruled and oppressed and enslaved by foreign power. And by foreign power, we mean a pagan power, a non-Yahweh worshiping power, okay? And that means that the people of God are not at present being ruled by God, okay? So God will raise up a deliverer for his people, a deliverer from among his people. Uh, that is a theme that we'll see repeated again. Uh, God always tends to redeem from within. And to grossly oversimplify the story, that, that deliverer, Moses, will be sent to Pharaoh with a message from God. And that message in part will say this, um, Exodus 4.22, God will start by saying, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son. So we need to talk just a, a little bit about this, this term firstborn. Um, a lot of preachers have made a lot of hay um, with that word. Um, I, I think maybe sometimes they've made too much hay with it. Um, but what, I, what God, through Moses, is saying here is simply that Israel is his people, not Pharaoh's, okay? Israel is my people, Pharaoh, not yours. And by using the term firstborn, it's a, it's a very intimate term. Um, Israel is, is brought into the closest and dearest relationship with God with all, the, with all the intimacy that a parent-child relationship implies, okay? And that's an important image. And it's an image that will be developed uh, by the prophets, um, particularly in the context of God's people when they experience um, pain and suffering, okay? Um, well, in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, God says, 
I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings. I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And don't miss the point here. As a parent, God is entering deeply into the suffering of his children, and he is claiming for them instead life and freedom. Okay, but Pharaoh will have to be convinced to, to let God's people go. Remember the song, let my people go, um, Exodus 9, verse 1. Um, Pharaoh is going to have to be convinced to do that. He is reluctant. He does not want to do that. They are free labor force for him. And so God will set about the task of convincing him uh, through a series of 10 plagues. Each one of them, and you may not know this, but each one of those 10 plays is a targeted assault on a particular one of Egypt's many gods, okay? So every one of those, those plagues will, will target a specific god of, of Egypt and will basically demonstrate um, to the Egyptians and, and to Israel, okay? Because Israel's learning also in all this, um, that, that Yahweh, that the God of Israel, is superior to Egypt, to each one of Egypt's gods, okay? Um, Egypt has made Israel suffer, and now God will make Egypt suffer by striking at the heart of their own idolatry, okay? And again, Israel's, you know, they're not just taking it easy while all this happens. They're, they're watching with rapt attention, and they are learning some things here about their God throughout all this process as well. Because remember, they have been living among pagans for 430 years. And even before that, what they knew about God was very limited. Okay, uh, There is a lot about this God who they serve and whose name that they bear that they just don't know. So um, God, while God is dealing with Egypt, he's also revealing things about himself uh, to his own people. Well, the final convincing blow against the people who have oppressed God's firstborn will come about through the striking down of all of Egypt's own firstborn. Israel will be spared through a, a, a feast, uh, through an event and a feast that uh, God will uh, have them commemorate every year from then on, a feast called the Passover. By the way, um, if you hear some clicking here in the in the background, we have had, um, um, so this is the week of the uh, big snowpocalypse that's all over the place. We, so we've had some blackouts, um, and our power even today has been going on and off. Um, so I am plugged into a universal power supply, so I think I'm still going to be able to just keep recording throughout all this. But um, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how this goes. Um so, uh, so this feast that uh, God will have Israel commemorate from every year from here on out is called the Passover. And you can read all about the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. Um, the people of God are about to be liberated. And what is significant here as we, as we tell this story is that in the case of the Passover, celebration precedes the event of liberation. God is having them celebrate this event uh, 
before it even happens. Um, in other words, the celebration of the event precedes the event. Think about that for just a minute. Think about what God is asking of his people when he asks them to celebrate something that hasn't happened yet. Okay. Now, I, I can't overemphasize how important this is for Israel because everything for Israel begins at this moment. This is a new beginning for them, so much so that their whole calendar is restructured with this event as, as its beginning point. Exodus chapter 12, verse 2 says, this month will be your first month. You're going to reorder your whole yearly calendar around this event. Your life begins now. So the way Passover works, Israel is to choose a lamb. They are to slaughter it on uh, at twilight on the 14th of, of the month, this month that will now be their first month of the year. And they're to eat the whole thing that night. And they're to eat it, Exodus 12, verse 11, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand. They're to eat it in a hurry. And the point is that this is a reminder that they are about to leave. The whole reason that they're to eat unleavened bread is because they didn't have time to allow it to rise, right? So it's, it's everything about this meal is a reminder to them that they're about to leave in a hurry, okay? Now, when they slaughter this lamb, they're going to take some of the blood and they're going to put it on, on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they're, where they're meeting to eat the lambs, okay? And in, in Exodus 12, verse 13, God will tell Israel that the blood will be a sign for you, okay? So, Understand this. This is not a sign for God. Sometimes we tell this story as though the the angel of death is passing through Egypt, and he needs to. The angel of death needs a reminder of okay, this this Israel lives here, so we're, they're not going to. You know, we we need to not touch them. We need to go on to the next house. God doesn't need a reminder to know where His people are. Okay, this this blood on the doorpost is a sign for Israel. Okay, it is a sign of the divine promise. God is committing himself to pass over the blood-marked houses of his people. And Israel can rely on God um, being faithful to, to his commitment. They can trust him. And the blood is going to be a reminder to them of that promise. God doesn't need a visible sign to know which houses to pass over. It's also significant that, there, that it's blood we're dealing with here because in, in, the, in the Bible, blood has meaning. Blood represents life itself. It is a sign of life. It is a, it is a marker that, that the people behind this door are destined for life, not death. Okay, And, and certainly there's a little bit of foreshadowing here. It is, it is, it is blood that is going to provide protection and salvation through Israel, for Israel throughout their history and ultimately in the death of Israel's representative, Jesus. Okay, um, Israel is told, verse 14, Exodus 12, verse 14, that this is a day they will commemorate for generations to come. The story uh, of what's going on here, what's happening, will be dramatized and reenacted for generations. It is a feast that will remind them that God is a rescuing God. He is a God who saves, and he saves them. He, he, he's, 
And while he saves them, he's reconstituting them as the redeemed Exodus community, the people of God. Three times in Exodus 12, we're told that the Passover is the Lord's Passover. And because that's so, it makes the, the, the Exodus redemption real and effective, not just for this generation, but for every subsequent generation. So every time they celebrate this, the Israelites are entering into a reality of this event in such a way as to be, once again, reconstituted as the people of God. Obviously, this is something that carries over uh, into what we know as the Lord's Supper, because for us, like, like Israel, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are, we are, in a sense, reconstituted as the people of God. We become the redeemed community of faith all over again. And the point is that the, the Lord's Supper, just like the Passover from which it comes, is a unifying event as much as a memorial, okay? And so it makes the, the event of redemption something that's not just memorialized as a past event, but is, is something that's appropriated in the present as well, okay? Uh, the Jewish ceremony for Passover, what they will call Passover uh, Haggadah, stresses that the people of God in every generation are active, actual participants in God's saving deed, as though, as though God is bringing us out of Egypt, okay? So it's not just a memorial. So, and, and, and I want to say the Lord's Supper is not just a memorial. It's not just something we do to remember something that happened long ago. There is a, there is a unifying event a, a reconstituting, a communal event um, as we do this, and as Israel did it, okay? So Jews, uh, obviously, in, in Jesus' day, uh, they organized their lives uh, around the major festivals and the, and the holy days, and, and among all the festivals and feasts, the greatest, unquestioningly, was the Passover, and it commemorated for them not just the night that God passed over Israel, but the whole story, the, the slavery, the hardship, the plagues on Pharaoh and his nation, the judgment on the firstborn of Egypt, the protection of the Israelites through the blood of the Passover lambs, the crossing of the, of the Red Sea, the journal, journey into the wilderness, the giving of the law, the Torah on Mount Sinai, the construction of the tabernacle, all of that stuff by Jesus' day was was called fresh into memory every time a, a first century Jew celebrated Passover. It was that that became a, the symbolic feast that symbolized all of that stuff. Okay, and when the Jewish people celebrated Passover year after year, they thought of it as a freedom festival that that not only looked back onto that original act of national liberation, but looked ahead too to another great act of liberation, especially when the people of Israel once more felt themselves enslaved or oppressed, as they did in the first century by the Romans, okay? We're going to talk about that in just a second as we sort of try to wrap some of this up. But the Passover event, with its, with its liberation from Egyptian slavery, signaled that God is king and that he will reign forever and ever. Exodus 15, 18. God had not abandoned his people as they may have felt uh, in Egypt. He, he has come to redeem them, all right? 
Um, the Passover reminds God's people that he is a rescuing God, a redeeming God, a God who cares deeply about the people who bear his name, a God who can almost feel the pain that is inflicted on his people. Now, let me try to wrap wrap some of this up together and, and kind of at least give you a hint of where we're going with all this, why the Exodus event is so central to the identity of God's people, Israel, and, and ultimately will be for us as well, and how some of the New Testament writers um, see this event, okay? Um, the Exodus event doesn't mention atonement, okay? Because this is, um, this is not about sin, all right? This is about the oppression of God's people, all right? But the Exodus will become one of, of, of two really important lenses through which the New Testament writers came to understand the death of Jesus. The other big interpretive lens is the return from exile, which is, was, was something very much part of the messianic expectation of, mercy, of most uh, first century Jewish people. And, and we're going to talk more about exile in, in, a, in an upcoming episode but those two ideas, and this is this is where I want to kind of bring this together here. I want you to grapple with this a little bit. And again, this this may be a little confusing, but it'll it'll become more clear when we when we talk about the exile a little more. Um, these two ideas, Exodus and exile, will will come together in first century Jewish thought, kind of like this. Okay. The Jewish expectation in the first century was for God to once again act in order to overthrow pagan oppressors. That's what he did in the first exodus. God's people were oppressed by, by non-Jewish, non-believing pagans. Okay, In the first century, Israel is oppressed again by non-Jewish pagan oppressors, Rome in this case. Okay, and so the part of the Jewish expectation in the first century was that God is going to come and he is going to once again do for us in first century Israel what he did for Israel in the days of Moses. Okay, and so that's part of it. The other part is that most Jews in the first century, and you, and you, you might not know this, you probably don't know this, most Jews in the first century believed that Babylonian exile had never really ended. Okay, we we we've been kind of dangling this a little bit in the last couple of episodes. Um, Israel had returned to the land from exile, and they even rebuilt the temple. But in their mind, God had not returned with them. And there's a couple of reasons that they thought that. First, because God's Glorious presence, uh, what the what the rabbis called the Shekinah, um, had not descended on the new temple the way it had descended on the tabernacle in the wilderness in, in Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, and on Solomon's temple in 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. So if you look at both of those passages, you'll see that when the, tab the tabernacle was constructed in the wilderness, and again when Solomon finished the temple, God's presence his glorious presence descended on those two structures and God dwelt among his people there, okay? Interestingly, 
when Israel returned from Babylonian captivity and they rebuilt this new temple, you're never going to read where the Shekinah of God, God's glorious presence, settled on that new building. And they did not miss that, right? They expected that. They did not miss the fact that it didn't happen. So in their minds, they had returned to the land, but their God didn't come with them. Okay. And the other reason that they that they thought the exile never ended was because, again, from the time of the Babylonian exile until the time of Jesus, even though they returned to the land, they were still being ruled over by a foreign pagan power. And that had been true every moment of their history from Babylonian exile until the time of Jesus. They were never again an independent nation of people. Okay. So in their minds, because of those two things, they were still in exile. Even though they, they came back to the land, they had a geographic place to live, and they had a new temple, and they were offering the sacrifices, there was something just not quite right about this whole experience. Okay, They, they were not free from exile. Okay, And exile came about in the first place, they knew because of their sins, sins which clearly must not have been dealt with, must not have been forgiven. So in the first century, Jewish expectation was for God to finally, finally forgive Israel's sins, bringing the exile to a full and final end. So those two things, the, 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 the expectation of another exodus, the, the freedom, uh, God acting to free his people from an oppressive power like he did in the first exodus, and a, a final return from exile and the forgiveness of sin that, that it signified, those two things would be combined in first century Jewish thought into a single act that they were anticipating. It's an act that N.T. Wright calls the, a new exodus. Okay, And here's the, here's the big point that I want us to see here and think about. Jesus Jesus knew all this, right? Jesus understood all these kinds of expectations. And so Jesus himself chose Passover as the moment to do what he had to do. And the first Christians would look back on the Passover as one of the main interpretive lenses for understanding his death. Jesus' death became the event that signaled both, both a new exodus and the ultimate return from exile when God himself returned to live among his people. Okay, Now, there's more that happened in Jesus' death than just that, but that happened, and that was a big deal, right? So there's, there's lots, of, lots of meaning that come out of Israel's scriptures invested in the death of Jesus, which is why Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ died and was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And that doesn't just mean that we can go back to the Old Testament and find a bunch of proof texts that talk about the Messiah and the fact that he would die for his people like um, Isaiah 53 talks about. It means there are there are pieces of, of, of the whole story of Israel for which Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole story of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, he will say. He is the, he is the thing that God intends to sum up everything in Jesus Christ, the New Testament will say. So that's, that's been kind of a, a deep dive into a, a bunch of stuff that's important, uh, most of it relating to, to um, the Exodus but it's all pointing forward to a much bigger event, an ultimate event in which Israel's story, their history, their identity as the people of God will find ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week. Uh, as always, we'd appreciate it if you tell others about the podcast if you enjoy the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher, Amazon Music, wherever you go uh, to get your podcast. If you if you rate us and review us, if you make a comment about the podcast, that that helps. Um, it, it helps the podcast kind of rank a little higher. It helps other people to find it. Um, so if you could do that, I would appreciate it very much, and you would be helping other people uh, to find it as well. Uh, please visit our Facebook page for the Jesus Society podcast. Uh, we've also got a Facebook group. Uh, check out our website, thejesussociety.com. And um, we've got, we're putting all the podcasts on YouTube and on Odyssey as well, slowly. Wish I was doing that faster, but I'm just not. And as we mentioned, we've got a Patreon page as well. If, if the Lord puts it on your heart to kind of help us out a little bit financially um, as we... As we um, kind of offset some of our production costs for all this. We are so grateful for you. We're so grateful that you've been with us for the last year, and we look forward to the year ahead. Um, I, I, I want this to bless you. I hope it does. Thank you so much for listening, and, and don't ever forget, you are greatly loved.